one thing I have noticed is since 2019 in particular, with the uptick in ransomware is when I've noticed more and more businesses that are not necessarily in the financial services sector starting to focus on operational resilience. Because it was the first time, you can go back to 2017 with NotPetya as well, that you started to see the disruption of the business services being seen as such a critical risk as compared to what they thought of as cyber risk before, which was more around data breaches, things like that, which they saw as a compliance issue. But now we're talking money. Now we're talking loss of sales, loss of, loss of revenue. And that's when the shift started happening. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. In this episode, we'll be presenting highlights from the expert panel that I moderated at the HIP London conference on June 9th, 2022. Enjoy. What we've just been doing all day is talking about disaster recovery and how organizations need to dust off their old disaster recovery plans and update them to encompass the risks that we have right now going on with cyber attacks. So we've been talking about all of that, but disaster recovery doesn't live all by itself. Today, to join with me to talk about that are three people that really know what's going on in this situation. So the first is Simon Hodgkinson. So Simon was formerly a BP, Chief Information Security Officer, where he was responsible for cybersecurity strategy, governance, architecture, education, counter-threat operations, and incident response. He joined BP in 2002 and held several senior IT leadership roles, including VP of Infrastructure and Integration Services. Simon is also a strategic advisor for Semperus. We have Rhea Thomas. Rhea is managing director of Polinia Advisory. There she's advised boards of directors and executive committees on a range of global firms on cyber-focused corporate governance and crisis response, including advising dozens of global firms on navigating live cyber crises. A New York licensed attorney, she spent the first decade of her career with the US government as an international security expert. Over the last decade, Rhea has headed cyber practices for several private sector firms with a focus on UK, Europe, US, Middle East, and Asia. Before that, she was a partner and global co-lead for cybersecurity for Brunswick Group. She writes and speaks extensively on business-focused cyber risks and resilience. And our final panelist here is John Craddock, who by now needs no introduction since he's already wowed us with his keynote and provided all sorts of good feedback during the day. So thank you and welcome all. Simon, why don't you help explain what exactly is operational resilience? How does it relate to disaster recovery? How is it similar? How is it different? Where does it fit in what we're talking about today? Yeah, thanks, Sean. Um, so, so operational resilience is a much broader topic than uh, than disaster recovery. It is all about maintaining business operations despite any event that can occur. Um, so that could be anything from a uh, a disaster, so 
as you you were aware, I was the CISO at uh, BP. BP had the Gulf of Mexico event, so a major uh, a major business impacting event, uh, which impacted the operations of getting oil out of the ground in the Gulf of Mexico. But it also impacted the company's reputation, which uh, again was uh, impacting operations across the uh, across the globe. So it can be anything from sort of physical. Uh, a physical effect, a kinetic effect through to a cyber issue, a digital issue, legal and regulatory. Um, it could also be around uh, your business strategy. So think people like Nokia, um, you know, they miss the boat on uh, on things like um, where, where smartphones were going. And that impacted their um, their operational resilience in many respects. Disaster recovery, however, tends to be uh, thought of in a much narrower, um, much narrower area, and it's often used in in the technology uh, arena. And it's about how do you recover the technology uh, within a particular set of um, service level agreements. So, we heard the term earlier around recovery time objective and uh, recovery point objective. Disaster recovery. People tend to think about a very short time frame. It's often 24 hours, 48 hours, um, and, and that's been the traditional mentality in IT and, and digital. It's often done very much in silos, so it was great to see the overarching plan today talking about bringing different, um, organization, different organizational parts together in the technology function where operational resilience is about the executive team down, the business managing through um, the operational impacts of, uh, say, a technology issue. So operational resilience is really about the larger organization, the larger business in general, rather than any, in any particular silo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it was interesting, you know, listening to people talk about the Im impact of, of, of ransomware. And of course, people talk about cyber risk, but they talk, tend to talk about cyber risk in isolation. Cyber is just a trigger for a business impacting event. It's, it's not special. I think we in cyber security have often made it special for our own aims, um, but it isn't. It's just a trigger for a, for, a, for a business impacting event, an event that could impact your, impact your operational resilience. Uh, so Rita, you've spent a lot of time in crisis management, how well do you think organizations have adopted or adapted their crisis management processes to handle cyber incidents? Um, what are they doing well? And maybe more importantly, what are they not doing so well? Okay. So first of all, I think this depends on the industry, the market, how regulated they are. So for example, with financial services, you're seeing more and more regulation come in in different markets that requires operational resilience to be a big piece of how the business is being run. But generally speaking, one thing I have noticed is since 2019 in particular, with the uptick in ransomware is when I've noticed more and more businesses that are not necessarily in the financial services sector starting to focus on operational resilience. Because it was the first time, you can go back to 2017 with NotPetya as well, um, that you started to see the disruption of the business services being seen as such a critical risk as compared to what they thought of as cyber risk before, which was more around data breaches, things like that, which they saw as a compliance issue. But now we're talking money. Now we're talking loss of sales, loss of, loss of revenue. And that's when the shift started happening. So on the positive side, I do see that there is more awareness of the need for planning or the need to understand this as a risk. On the what can we do to improve side, 
the reality is how does it actually trickle into practice so this can be on you know we talk about it's on the board's agenda it's it's you know it has the 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 attention of the ceo but how that actually comes into play in terms of what the business is doing differs from business to business i've seen a couple of different assumptions take place uh, the first assumption is assuming that their current crisis plans work, that um, what I mean by that, their current crisis structures are in place, that they normally, especially if they are a large global firm or one that's been in, in practice for a while, they believe that their current structure works. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. You might have a very large global firm that is well used to crises, that's well used to having um, very complex structures around crisis management. But when it comes to understanding how they're reacting to a crisis that is, say, safety-related or um, that is related to a reputational risk, etc. The crisis that may have previously existed, when you are now integrating across different, uh, different uh, geographical markets, may not be enough to sustain what you need to know from a, from a holistic perspective. The other assumption I've found is that when, when they say they have a crisis response plan for cyber in place, they're often talking about the cyber incident response plan. They're talking about the technical response plan. They're not necessarily talking about how it's integrating with the business cyber crisis plan and what the roles and responsibilities are across different business units, not just the cyber and IT teams. And that really highlights to me where a big assumption is, which is that when it's a cyber crisis, it's the responsibility of the CISO, the CIO, the tech and IT teams, the disaster recovery teams, et cetera. And that's not actually the case. Because when it comes to operational resilience, what I have often seen is that, let me, let me speak in some generalities, but specifics. So what I mean by that is an example of, of a client that I've worked with, um, where they were down for well over three weeks. And they still had thousands of employees benched at that point. Now, as you can imagine, they were not meeting their contractual obligations. So now you have all kinds of legal risk taking place, in addition to which, in, in certain other instances for clients, they've had, unfortunately, the attack has taken place around the time when they would normally pay their salaries, or they have their Christmas bonus. And in certain markets, because of labor regulations, they were under undue pressure to be able to, to be able to provide the, the salaries to their employees. But they have no way of rebuilding what, at that stage how it was that they were going to pay, number one, but what it was that they were going to So as an example, my point is these issues encompass not just software and IT, but HR, legal, communications, government relations, investor relations, but all of the types of businesses have assumed that it is the IT and cyber team's responsibility, not theirs. How they're being perceived by their customers, by their shareholders, by regulators, is actually what the rest of the business is doing. So it is fundamentally important that the rest of the business understands what the reality is in terms of how long that they might be down and what that might mean from an operational resilient perspective and what their roles and responsibilities are to ensure that the business remains resilient at the same time. So the, the cascading effects of what may be technically just an, just an IT outage resonating throughout the company. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. So just, I think it's a great description, actually. Um, the one thing that is different about cyber is it's borderless and boundaryless. So if you go back to a BP crisis, again, Gulf of Mexico, as big as it was and, and, and as expensive as it's been for the organization, from a crisis management perspective, it was somewhat geographically constrained. Um, so mostly focused on the incident in of itself and, and, and the US. 
we've had lot, lots of other incidents over time, but they've all been sort of geographically constrained. So the, and we had a very well-defined three-tier incident management structure from the incident response team managing it, the business response team managing the impact to the business and the executive team, if, if it was required, managing the big reputational risk for the company. If you multiply that out by the number of businesses that would be impacted by a global outage for a company like BP, you would probably end up having about 500 incident management teams running. So how on earth do you manage the communications across that so that you've got consistent, cohesive communication? So I think you made a great point there. Yeah, cyber is, cyber is uh, constrained by network, not by physical location. Gil, did you have a question? Yeah, I had a question. The, I, I'm not clear on the distinction between operational resilience and business continuity. Um, are they almost, they sound very similar, if not the same. Can, can you sort of distinguish between the two sure. concepts? Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure Simon and yeah, both um, you would, have, um, would be able to contribute as well. So from, from my perspective, the business continuity management, and, and again, maybe I'll use an example uh, of this. Um, with one particular company that I worked for, they had um, uh, they had made the investment so that um, that a third party provider would help build their systems back up within seven days. That was the the outlying requirement, and the assumption was that within those seven days they would be up and running. They had business continuity management processes in place for any type of operational disruption, meaning that their logistics um, would not work or if their service providers would not be there had not planned for an IT type of an outage or any type of technical outage to take place for longer than those, say, three days. What that meant was it wasn't just a question of continuing the, continuing the business operations, but rather to the point you made earlier, it was about what the um, cascading impacts were from a legal perspective, from a strategic perspective, from a financial perspective. How were they going to keep the business operational, not just in terms of what they needed to do to provide services, but to run overall as a business as well? So John, so we, you spent all this morning really helping us understand the fundamentals of zero trust, and you spent a lot of time helping organizations do what they the the, the buzzword uh, uh, digital transformation. How can uh, progressing with zero trust help an organization's operational resilience? Okay, so I should say right off from the onset, I'm, I don't take the bigger you know, picture. I'm very focused on the sort of keeping the IT system running, so the identity space. And, but what I would say is it absolutely needs buy-in throughout the whole company. And what I've seen is very underfunded IT departments. Problem with that is if something does happen, all right, have they, you know, they're not going to be as agile as they possibly could be. But what I've also seen is that when a cyber instance has occurred, what the upper management has been absolutely amazed about is the dedication of the IT department. You know, these guys have lost their systems, they've lost their identity systems, they've gone down, and they're working 24 hours a day to get them back up again. And, and the other guys are going around saying, Shouldn't you go home and you know change? No, we need to get this up and running. And after that, and after those instants, suddenly the budget just goes through the ceiling for those departments, <laughs> and they go, "This must never happen again." So you know, sometimes uh, a cyber instance is good as long as you recover. But I have seen so many that they've only recovered 
by luck. So having you know something, a system going down and the only backup remaining that wasn't encrypted happened to be sitting in a server in a data center in New York. Right? And somebody had illegally made that backup. It wasn't in the procedure. Uh, and they managed to get their AD back from that. Um, taking the, the wider perspective of zero trust, I think zero trust is a new way of looking at things. I mean, we, you know, you could say it's a rebadge of defense in depth, but it's actually different. Defense in depth was about <laughs> protecting on-premise AD. And I said this morning, you know, you, you log in, username, password, and you are basically a trusted user in that environment. And now what we're looking at is, you actually are being authenticated for a particular reason. And that particular reason is accessing a service of some kind. And we can put in all sorts of controls, as I was talking about this morning, to make that whole path that much more secure. And then, of course, you bring in the governance. So least privilege, but it's not just about least privilege, it's governance for all our users and, you know, exactly what access should those users have. We track it, we've got governance, we've got the ability of doing access reviews on that. So I think overall it makes a much more holistic approach um, to getting our identity systems up and running correctly mm -hmm. and you know keeping that IT running. So I think in terms of operational resilience, it's zero trust. Even if you don't implement it fully, you're thinking about it. But to do it, you need that complete stack of buy-in right from the, the, you know, the people that have to pay the money through all of the, the rest of the teams. And I think that's a, that's a real benefit. But you know, as I said this morning, it's not a switch you turn on. Um, it's a process that you need to go through. But it's a process that has some real rewards. I, I think you have, we have danced around this topic or touched on it very lightly that I think it's a great time to bring it up, which is how do the people here that are responsible for doing the work that we see is the enormous amount of work to have a good disaster recovery strategy. And I, some of the slides talked about the amount of effort that it takes to do that. What would you say are the ways that you get buy-in other than having a disaster? <laughs> Executive buy-in to get support. Uh, one of the things that came up, this was uh, before today, and I, I think it was George, and he didn't bring it up today, was of an organization where they did a disaster recovery from the executives on down, uh, full organization dis disaster recovery simulation, which among, besides having great executive buy-in, is heinously expensive. So the question for each of or whoever chooses to add, how do you do it? Thank you. Um, so it starts with exercising, actually. Um, so the exec to get the executive team to understand the impact, you've got to take them through the events. So um, every, uh, every year we used to run, uh, I work very closely with the head of crisis and continuity management. They would run regular um, crisis exercise with the executive teams and at the very top of the uh, company, including some of the board members. And then for each of the business units, they would have their own C-suite and we would run independent exercises um, for, for those guys. One of the things we, we did was we changed the language. We didn't talk about 
um, cyber risk as such or, you know, Active Directory. We talked about prolonged loss of IT as a risk. And uh, we made the case to make that the exercise that the executive teams um, went through. Uh, and I remember I mean, we got tremendous support from uh, the top of the house. Bob, Bob Dudley was the CEO of BP at the time. He flew in from Mauritania and Senegal to come into a cyber crisis exercise. And for four of the last five, they were um, all related to prolonged loss of IT, whether that was in the uh, corporate IT environment. So, um, you know, your usual ERP systems and directory, et cetera, or indeed in the operational technology. So what, what would happen if, if one of the, um, the, the te if the technology went down on the rig or back to the concept of defense in depth or zero trust? What would happen if something got into the IT network and how do you take mitigating actions against something happening in the operations technology? So the technology that runs the rigs, the refineries, the terminals, the pipelines, et cetera. So I think that shows real commitment from the top of the house that, and that gets the, um, gets them really embedded in the fact that this isn't a DR issue. This isn't a 24 hour recovery. And we've had, uh, data center outages in the past in our history where we lost the data center for 24 hours, um, which I remember vividly. Um, and that was a, uh, all hands to the pump, as you just said. Uh, people working around the clock to actually, you know, recognizing that a prolonged loss of IT in a in a major ransomware means you're out for weeks. Uh, and to, to this notion of operational resilience, it includes human resilience and the importance of having uh, resilience in your organization. That means having rotors of people are able to execute activity and not relying on the same individual to, to manage 72, you know, 96 hours of on uh, conti uh, con continuous uh, right. operation. Right. So the aspect of uh, th this, um, making this run, making this work, doing this level of effort, how do you, so so you talked about the executives being in on these exercises and all that. How do you interest the ex the ex if you don't have the executive interest? How do you, other than frightening them to say you're not going to be able to access anything, or the business won't be running? How do you how do you get their interest? Um, so I think I can speak to that as well. You're right about the exercising, but to before that, I think there needs to be from the management side, someone who's a non-IT business lead, who's your champion. And, and the only way to get them to understand that is to speak in a language that is familiar to them. So if you're speaking to the general counsel, then it's really helping them to understand what the legal risks might be, what the liabilities are, et cetera. If you can get someone like that that's not traditionally sitting within the IT space as your ally in the discussion, then you're bringing a different perspective to the board, to the executive board. And I found that that's very helpful are these executive level briefings where they're being talked to. So if it's a CFO from a financial perspective, what a long-term outage means, what that actually means in terms of operational disruptions and how that plays out. That I found is the best way to get a, a sort of a joined up approach that really attracts interest. Again, spot on. I think, you know, I've done some work in, in, in government since leaving um, BP and it's changing the language to not be about an I, you know, a particular IT outage or whatever, but 
talk about the impact. So patient safety, uh, impact to clinical operations. So if you're working in healthcare, um, impact to train services. If you're if you're working in in railway, whatever your industry is, it's about you know constructing the language that talks about the impact. Um, but <laughs> don't underestimate the impact of others. So not Petya. Um, and the impact that had on Merck and Maersk and Reckitt was probably the most impactful thing to get the executive teams bought into this was an issue. So, you know, I was blessed with working for a big organization, but people who went to Davos post that, all they talked about in the World Economic Forum was cyber. They talked a bit about climate change, but actually the conversation out the main room most of the time was talking about this thing called cyber risk that most of the executives didn't know a lot about, but recognised that they needed to get knowledgeable. Uh, and in the UK, we've got a brilliant organisation called the NCSC, the National Cyber Security Centre, and, and they do things like board toolkit training. So if you work for companies with boards or executive teams, get them to go through that because then it gets them to at least provoke them to ask the right questions and and by asking the right questions, they might get the answers they perhaps don't want to hear, but at least they get to hear, you know, the, the current state of the environment. Yeah, I, I always find a, a, a good in to the board is the chief security officer normally. Um, they, and it's not just about the security of the system. It's, I talk about availability and availability as in business continuity. So... You know, they, they they had many a discussion, and we we talk about um, very discussion I've had many of them is with synchronizing passwords from on-prem into the cloud, and, and now it's sort of accepted that you can do it. But one of the things I'd always say is, okay, so we're not syncing the passwords, so we're using a different authentication method. That goes down. And we've got 500,000 people with no passwords in the cloud. Um, how do you want to deal with that for availability perspective? And normally that gets the conversation going. And, and then we can progress it further and looking at overall strategy. But I, what I also find is that um, when people are doing the auditing and they're doing the assessments of systems, they're very, they, they know Active Directory on-prem. What they don't understand is the cloud. And, and so if you, you have a third party that's come in to actually evaluate what someone is compliant, they, yes, they, they can do the AD on-prem piece, but it's the cloud piece that sort of doesn't really fit in their remit at the moment. So, Daniel, do you want to... Just one, one comment. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Sean. Uh, one comment on that is Active Directory sits in this grey area between cybersecurity and IT operations. Cybersecurity seems to be able to get money. Um, so if you scare the executive teams and the boards enough, you tend to be able to extract some money to go and do the cybersecurity things. IT ops is always under pressure, and I ran global infrastructure and operations for BP. I can assure you it was never a here's some more money. It was always about how do you, how do you get more for, for less in many respects. Um, and I think... Uh, the one way, one of the things that we don't do, and I think um, maybe Gil mentioned it earlier, was about the criticality of applications. The most critical application in any company 
that uses Active Directory from a confidentiality and integrity and an availability perspective is Active Directory. But the business leaders wouldn't know that unless you're able to draw that linkage between here's your business outcome. I know um, put in product on shelves in a retail station. Here's the process by which you do it. Here's the applications that underpin that. And here's all the infrastructure and other applications that have to be there, have to be available, have to have integrity in order to you to deliver that getting product on, on the market. And I think it's absolutely critical people go back and explain the, li the linkage that Active Directory underpins every business outcome because every organization is digital now in reality. An active director is critical to all of those. Hi, can I ask a question of you, Gil? Is is from from your experience with dealing uh, with dealing with? Sorry, I see you're eating. <laughs> from your experience of uh, dealing dealing with customers, um, how many of them don't realise how critical their active directory is to their environment? So it's a good question. I think. From my perspective, I usually get involved after the point they realize that it's critical. Uh, so just from my own interactions, uh, most of them have a good idea of how critical it really is. From what I've heard sort of secondhand is, a, I would say a large number, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but a significant number of organizations don't quite get it. That's changed in the last few years, maybe the last three years or so. Um, we've, I've heard again, sort of secondhand that Active Directory recovery and Active Directory um, uh, vulnerabilities have actually been discussed at the board level in some larger organizations. So it's, in some cases, it's surfaced to that to that level in the organization. But I think in general, it's still, you know, it'd be less than half for sure, uh, where that uh, organizations really understand what Active Directory means to their their operations. Yeah, I think sort of again, cyber attacks have helped in terms of people now realize oh, our Active Directory could disappear. Yeah, and but, what would that mean? But um, yeah, I think people still have this feeling Active Directory just works, and you know, it's it's the other bits that you have to worry about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or even worse, they said, I don't even know what Active Directory is. What you know, what is that? Yeah, you know, a lot then, of times you and you then run. stick Azure in front of it, and uh, it's even yeah, worse. Exactly. So, so I actually had a question. I also had a remark. Um, what Simon was saying just there about cloud. Sorry, I'm going to stand up. It's okay. It really doesn't matter because our applications are in the cloud. I actually had this conversation this morning with a global insurance company. Um, I was explaining to them, you know, about Active Directory. When we were talking about a lot of things that we do, and the question comes: and Why are we talking about Active Directory? We don't really care. We have SaaS applications, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, sure, you have your applications in the cloud, and they're not depending on your infrastructure. How do you authenticate? What are the means of authentication? Well, we don't really know. I say, <laughs> I'd say on a 90% probability that you're using Active Directory. So if your AD is down, basically, all of your cloud applications, even if you're not managing them, they're down too. So your business is basically down. And that's something a lot of people don't grasp. I mean, same thing when we were talking about, I think it was George was talking about Office 365 and the fact that, you know, he's using uh, 
basically, um, you know, ADFS or whatever to authenticate. Same thing. When your AD is down, basically, you don't have access to Office 365 anymore unless you start doing things. So it's not just Active Directory not logging in on your computer. It's everything is down. And that's what many, many companies don't understand. And that was also one of the points um, where I used to be able to talk a lot about technical stuff with companies. It was tech for tech. So we'd sell tech stuff to techies, and that used to work in the years 2008, 2009, whatever. But since then, we know that techies don't have the money anymore. It's more about the business, and the business you know, makes all the decisions. And now when I go and talk to different C-levels, I come out of the, the tech part, and I'm trying to understand their business and I try to explain to them actually what happens. And as you said, we're not talking about cyber risk or whatever. We're talking about if there's failure on your IT, basically, how does this impact your business? And I just have one example on that. So I have um, one of the companies that, that I'm working for right now. They, all, they actually have all their production, their industrial PCs that are on the production active directory environment. They have all their points of sale on active directory. So if active directory is hit, they can't sell anything in the stores. They can't build their product anymore. And they can't send them, you know, from the stores to the warehouses or whatever. So the whole, basically the whole company is down. And we're talking about millions of euros per day. And this is when people start understanding that it's not just techie guys having an issue with a database. It's basically your whole business is not able to operate anymore. And sorry about that. So I had a question. So I was just uh, dodging on that one. So questions about operational resilience. And this one was a, was a fun fact because some people from St. Paris actually helped us on this case. Um, we had an issue with a group. So one of the groups that we work for, so a global insurance company, a worldwide company, um, they had a cyber attack. And one of the subsidiaries was actually hit. And my question for you when we're talking about operational resilience and you're trying to say you have to define the key stakeholders and everything, how does that work in an international group? Let's say that um, your holding is in France, uh, you have companies in the US, in Africa, in Asia. One of the companies is hit. Who's actually going to make the decisions? Is it the company itself, the subsidiary? Is it the holding? Who's accountable for, for making the decisions? That's a great question, and that's one that multiple global companies have actually struggled with, and I've had the lovely pleasure of being a part of those discussions. Um, it depends. I, I, I mean, I hate using that as the answer, but um, because it depends on, on how involved the group, group um, is. So what I mean by that is some of them have devolved responsibility to the subsidiaries, depending on the type of incident. So in, in certain, let's take, for example, data breach incidents. I've noticed that they've let the subsidiary handle it, although the group is struggling to try to get a sense for what the blowback is for the, for the broader brand, if you will. Um, in other instances, it's led to paralysis. And, and as an example, um, in general terms, a company, let's say, that's headquartered out of Asia, but has um, the incidents happening in Europe. However, it has affected markets in the US. In this instance, um, in this particular instance, the paralysis took place for a while because the Asian side of the business wanted to come out and apologize. And, and they wanted the, the group um, CEO to come out and apologize uh, in uncertain terms and take responsibility. As you can imagine, the American side of the business was horrified, especially the lawyers who were like, don't you dare do that. Dare use the words, <laughs> I am sorry, or, you know, we take responsibility, etc. In the meantime, the Europeans were the ones that were being directly effect affected. Um, because you also have all kinds of regulatory requirements that are being triggered across multiple markets. So the challenge then, it, it took a while, um, but eventually a compromise language had to be created that would allow, you know, 
every part of the business to um, to to feel vindicated, if you will, to a certain extent. But it does raise the question from the very beginning as to how, at the group level, this these issues are being looked at as a broader business risk for across the group. And especially when you have portfolio companies, I found that that's where the difficulty is in getting a real understanding at the group level as to what the business implications are for the broader business and all the brands that might be sitting under that particular group. Okay, if I can just add to that, I, I think th some of it comes through exercising as well. So, so one of the things through our exercising was getting clear who had decision rights. So I could take any mitigating action uh, in the event of a cyber attack. So I could choose to sever the connection to our process, uh, pro, um, our refineries, our rigs, or or what have you. Uh, in fact, when Petya hit, I severed the network. Uh, incident call stood up. I told them to sever the network to three different companies, Ukraine, Russia, um, Poland, I think it was. And and the impact of that was we weren't able to take credit card payments in uh, in our retail stations uh, in Poland for a, for a period of time. But I felt that was the right decision. I felt empowered to make that. From a communications perspective, however, I wasn't going to be the person that would go out there and, and say, this is, you know, we, we had clear communication protocols. Um, now, that might sound overly um, bureaucratic, but in a global organization, you know, we saw it when third parties were hit. We even had to be really careful what we said when, when third parties um, were hit, because obviously if we commented on them being hit and they hadn't gone to press, that yet it was impacting our operations in fact one of the one of the things we haven't talked about is is uh, is third party in terms of uh, operational resilience and and one of the biggest uh, one of the, um, a major cyber event that we experienced didn't happen to us it happened to one of our third parties who weren't able to deliver product to our retail stations in one of our um, countries that led to stockouts in a retail station. If you haven't got product to sell in a retail station, there's no point opening um, and you're not making any money. Um, and that was because we didn't have diversity of supply in the supply chain. You know, So, so you've got to think through the end-to-end -end business piece, but you've also, to your, to your question, I, th I think you've got to exercise, you've got to understand the implications of making decisions, especially the legal implications of, of communication and I was glad that was wasn't in my uh, in my remit I think it really points out you know what we're talking about here so much of this are the non-technical aspects that the old the old cliche people processes and technology it's not just the technology there's certainly a lot of process and but there's a lot of people it's organization agreed upon ahead of time and as Ben would say uh, he advocating the uh, tear open the envelope org structure when there's a disaster. So it's everybody is agreed ahead of time. And we have customers that are very large global customers and, and you can just tell that by the way they're organized, there will be difficulties because of multiple business lines and everybody's got to agree at it. And they don't agree on anything on a daily basis. Thank you very much for your insights. I think this, this is a fascinating discussion. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. 
Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.